Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks so much for joining us today for the next episode in our Tuesday podcast series, in which each month we bring in one of our all-star guests to take over the series, picking the topics for the month and joining me on the episodes. My guest in September is Craig Stromberg, PwC's macro intelligence leader. As globalization continues to impact economies around the world and companies seek alternatives to doing business in China, we thought it'd be a good time to reevaluate India's rising influence on the global economy and to understand how India is moving from participating in the global economy to shaping it. It would be ill-advised to treat India as a monolith. Think about locality in India. Think about things at the state level, as Zane has talked about, because you will have varying opportunities, various tax structures, various regulatory structures. Those states are competing with one another for business. And so getting a good guide to help you understand that level of competition could lead to greater opportunity. I think one way that most businesses have tried to mitigate uh, some of the risk is having a local partner, uh, which have helped navigate some of these complex uh, legal issues um, and operating other operating risks uh, within India. So I think that's something like China, which uh, is true for India as well. Um, it, it's, it's important to make sure that you have done your stakeholder mapping and also that you have a local partner uh, who you could use uh, or leverage uh, to uh, navigate the complex regulatory framework that India has. In today's episode, Craig's joined by Zane Siddiqui, PwC Intelligence Senior Economist, to dive deeper into the current state of India's economy, its impact on the global economy, and the opportunities, as well as risks, it presents for companies worldwide. Craig and Zane have a lot to cover, so let's get started. So Zane, Craig, welcome back to the podcast. So nice to have you on. And uh, I think, Craig, I started our first episode by asking you big picture why these topics, but maybe we can start today's episode by why India? Why is that a focus right now? So India is definitely having a moment. It's interesting that if you go back to 2005, I think, when Modi tried to come to the U.S., the U.S. denied him a visa. And when he came to Washington a few weeks ago, the firm was able to get me into a private audience that he had at the Kennedy Center. Oh. And first of all, I mean, I've been in Washington for decades. I don't know that Washington has ever turned itself out for somebody like it turned itself out for Modi. Like They went all out for him. And the attitude at the Kennedy Center was like the Beatles were there. And so India is a conversation that a lot of companies are having because of the things we're talking about, because of global shifts, mm -hmm. because of supply chain, because of the economy. And they are aggressively positioning themselves, I think, in a way that they've never done before with clearly a lot of forethought to take advantage of that. 
Okay, so I have to rewind though. Why did they deny his visa in 2005? So at the time, there were a number of policies about population, society, and culture Mm -hmm. that the government said, you know, probably should lead to a denial. But Modi, you know, now is not Modi then. Right. Like the, the degree of power and political sophistication and polish. I mean, he is arguably one of the most interesting politicians in the world and increasingly adept. So, I mean, he, he's really good at managing sort of India's rise and brand. All right. Well, less than 20 years later, that's a huge, it's huge, huge change. And I guess with that sort of related question then is that it seems like India is all over the news. So I don't know if, if that is one of the factors, but why is, why are we seeing that? And then obviously then what does that really mean? So part of it relates to what we talked about on the last podcast on global forces, where we talked about geopolitical tension. So, One of the things that we'll talk about on supply chain one is as U.S.-China tension increases, global but especially U.S. multinational company uncertainty about the Chinese market increases. Very few companies are leaving. You know, most companies want to stay in the market because it's such a gravitational market, Mm -hmm. right? The the level of wealth, sophistication, you know, buying power. Technology, labor, it, it's such an attractive market. But they are beginning to think differently about whether or not there should be alternatives. And the question then becomes sort of, if not China, where? Mm-hmm. And there is a real competition that is going on to be the answer to that question. And India is trying with real purpose to position itself to become one of the top answers when especially U.S. companies ask that question. So then, Zane, let me bring you into the conversation. From your perspective, as you look at this, what does it really mean, and and what are you seeing? I think there has been a lot of focus, strategic focus by the U.S. um, on India. Uh, But I think we need to remember that India has always displayed classical drivers of growth. Uh, It's a big, uh, highly addressable consumer market. Uh, Demographically, it's in a very good spot. Uh, It's a bright market, but at the same time, it has always been a very complex market. When you talk with clients, you find out very quickly that it's not a very easy operating environment uh, to work in. Um, What's the, there has been a change in mindset though. And that change, I think, has been driven by a few factors. One that Craig mentioned. I think the first one is probably if you look at the global economy, it's growth starved. You are looking at region like Europe, uh, where we expect uh, growth to be tepid over for some time. Uh, you look at China and growth in China all of a sudden is looking very wobbly. Uh, here you have India, which is still managing to grow at about 6 to 7% on an annual basis. And the expectation is that they will continue to grow at about that pace over the next decade or two. And if that's the case, then India will likely be the third largest economy by 2050. Uh, the other factor to keep in mind is what Craig mentioned. Um, you have companies who are trying to pursue supply chain resiliency. 
They are trying to shelter themselves from the various geopolitical positioning, which is happening globally. And India is often mentioned as the top five markets where we could put, uh, companies could potentially expand or ship their supply chains to. And then third, uh, which, and the final factor, which I think is probably the most important factor, is the fact that India is beginning to now invest in infrastructure and innovation. And we are seeing this across IT and tech industries. We are seeing this in healthcare and pharma. There is a long road to go, uh, but it's happening. And I think that's a good sign. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of investment used to turn away from India was because of the lack of infrastructure that India had. So there's still some uh, way to go. Uh, I, I think it's too premature to say that the stars are aligned, but they are aligning. And when you say uh, top three market, where are they now just for relatives so people can understand what that means? We are seeing a lot of interest in Mexico. We are seeing a lot of interest in uh, Vietnam. But India is often mentioned amongst the top uh, five countries where companies are thinking in terms of shifting their supply chains. In terms of the size of the economy, yeah. by 2050, uh, U.S. will still be uh, in the number one spot, followed by China and then India. And if you stretch out uh, the timeline, by 2070, India will likely be the second largest economy in the world, displacing the U.S. And where are they now? Uh, fifth largest. All right. The only thing I will add, which I think is something that a lot of U.S corporate officers who have been in India for a while or followed India for a while is to say that balancing all of the optimism that we're expressing here is that we've seen this movie at least twice before. Mm -hmm. One was in the early nineties, mid nineties, and the other was around 2006 when India seemed primed where it had all the ingredients for a breakout globally. And for a variety of reasons, that didn't happen. And I, I, think, I think what we're dealing with now, as we'll discuss today, is different. Because the world is different, power is shifted, the economy is different, India is different. But I think it is important for historical context to understand that this isn't the first time India has sort of walked up to the starting gate to advance to the next level. They've been close before. All right, that's helpful. And I have to say, I was very distracted when Zane said they were fifth because it's like California's fifth. But I realized California really isn't measured separately. That would just be if it was its own country. So uh, I, I do have to say it distracted me, though. Now, let me ask you guys a question because we talked, you started talking about India as a market, and then you talked about it from resources, business partner, investment. Are they all equally important right now, or are we seeing? sort of more of a focus on, on one of those, or it's all of those factors that are starting to make, I'll say, the stars align to follow Zane's term. So to me, I'll give you my take, and you know, obviously Zane should give you his. I think the alignment goes something like this. On the geopolitical front, India firmly believes, and I understand this fully, that this is the time when they should be having a larger part of the geopolitical conversation. You know, they should be sitting more at the table than they are because of the size of their market, the size of their population, economic growth, the unique role that they play in the world for decades as the leader of the non-aligned movement. 
you know, as someone that is known sort of globally as everybody talks to the Indians for the most part, right? Russians talk to the Indians, you know, Chinese still talk to the Indians, the U.S. talks to the Indians. Everybody sort of has this dialogue. They're sort of in the middle, literally and figuratively, of everything, and that's a huge advantage. So I think they are really purposefully trying to grow their power, and I think you see Modi really cultivating this carefully. And you saw an outstanding example of this that I think to many people in the U.S. might have seen a small thing last week, right, when they successfully landed the lunar rover, you know, days after the Russian one failed. You know, Russia, which has been going to space for decades, right, and landed probes successfully on the moon before, right? I mean, India held its breath. We, we work, Zan and I, with a number of Indian colleagues, exceptionally talented people, and none of them, you know, were away from their televisions. I mean, the entire country, right, one billion people plus, were watching. Modi was watching from the BRICS event. Mm-hmm. So they are trying to very purposefully ascend to power. I think the other part of this, though, is that they're also trying to make their market more attractive. They're trying to get new business and some business that might be leaving other markets in Asia to go elsewhere. And they are hosting a lot of global events. They're hosting a lot of corporate events. You see them opening their doors to a lot of companies from a lot of U.S. sectors, trying to get them in to understand India, to make investments, to make the market more attractive, more receptive. So I think it's both sides. Zane, do you agree with Craig? I I agree. I think uh, there has been a lot of reforms lately uh, where India uh, has made progress. I think ta- the uniform tax code that India had in addition with the bankruptcy code, all of that are steps in the right direction. I think there is still some work to be done. Uh, the other critical factor that India faces is the fact that it's a very large country. It has 28 states. Uh, when you have a company which goes into India, it's like operating in uh, 28 different markets because each of those market states have different priorities. They have different bureaucratic inertia. They have different regulations that companies would have to deal with. So it's really difficult to have a pan-Indian strategy. There has been some work on that, but a lot more needs to be done. And I think that's something which tends to dissuade a lot of businesses to move to India. And businesses who end up moving to India find it very difficult to operate there. All right. Craig, let me go back to actually something you said in our last podcast, because you sort of alluded to it here. And we were talking about shifting geopolitical capital. And you gave this example of there's sort of in the world a finite amount of 100 units and that you're starting to see it shift. Is there sort of a relative amount of a shift that you can see that we feel like India thinks it should have more or is this, it's all way too nebulous that I got, I shouldn't have gotten hung up on your hundred units that no, you gave? No, it's a good question. I, I think part of the problem is, is that they often equate population with power, which in many cases it does. Like you can have remarkable GDP growth because even if you're starting from a meager position, if everybody sort of moves up together and you have a billion plus people, that's an enormous amount of growth on paper. But I think part of the challenge is that they probably want more units than they are ready to handle. 
And part of it is because I personally think that they still sort of want to declare and think about what do they want to be. And this is part of India's unique geopolitical placement. India is a whole bunch of things at the same time, right? In some ways, it is the basis of the Indian subcontinent. In some ways, it is the most westernmost of the Indo-Pacific countries. And in some ways, you could consider it the most eastern of the Middle East, depending upon where you draw borders, right? And they have extraordinarily strong relationships in the Middle East, including with countries like Iran. And so they have this huge historical reach and they sort of need to decide what do they want to be and what does it look like? And I don't know that I can discern that they've got that unified picture yet. I think they have sort of agreed among the powers that be that they want more power and that they should have more power because of their size and the opportunity they present. What that looks like, I'm not sure they've very clearly enunciated that yet. So that's a perfect follow-in to my next question, which I think we've talked about actually on our past Indian podcast, but this is just talking about the relative size of India's population and sort of where they rank relatively in terms of both aging, um, you know, fertility and birth and, and growth of population. How does India sort of fit in and what are we seeing? So this is the year where we had an inflection point where India's 1.4 billion people, uh, they surpassed China and became the largest uh, population base in the world, according to the UN and other estimates. Um, What's different about this is when you look across Asia, most countries are moving uh, past their demographic dividend. Uh, What's special about India is that that's happening very slowly. The transition is uh, happening very slowly where we are seeing more of a gradual decline in birth and death rates. Uh, you are also seeing a lot of young people who are entering the workforce. Uh, what we generally look at when we are assessing population is the dependency ratio. How your old age uh, population is dependent on the working age population. And for India, the dependency ratio is going to be close to the lowest over the next two decades. So these next 20, uh, next 20 years are probably going to be uh, the window where India needs to get it right in terms of adding more manufacturing capacity, growing their services sector, as well as in investing more in infrastructure. But at the same time, the challenge is that when you have such a large labor force, you need to make sure that that labor force is productive. Uh, it's being absorbed in the formal economy. Uh, and for that, you need to make sure that you need to, ha you need to uh, continue to have high quality uh, educational institutes, colleges, and universities. You need to have vocational training, and you need to make sure that your labor force keep upskilling and is retrained based on how the economy is changing. Well, and to that point, Sin, do you think that they are positioned to keep up in terms of education, training, and otherwise with the growth in the population? They are certainly trying, but they are having a difficult time. If you look at the labor force participation rates, that's amongst the lowest. Uh, when you compare it to their peers, they have a labor force participation rate of around 50%. And part of the reason is that female labor force participation rate is much lower. So that's where they need to make progress. They need to make sure that more females are joining the labor force in a more gradual fashion. And at this point, we are not seeing a lot of progress there. 
Yeah, a couple of points to reinforce here is, first of all, female labor participation is a problem in India, right? They, they know this, they talk about it, they've tried to make programs to address this. But some of this is, you know, is cultural and social, and part of it is about advancement in education. But a relatively low number of women work in India compared to those who India is trying to compete with, you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, etc., and when you look at part of what made the Asian tigers, you know, who are now global powers, right? You know, South Korea, Japan, et cetera, change from their post-war economies into the advanced economies that they are now is the participation of women, right? A lot of participation of women. Like you, you can't get to that next stage in the economy unless that figure dramatically improves. And, there's a lot of comparison of statistics you can do across sort of India and its competitors. And I think metaphorically, one way for listeners to think about this is as companies begin to think about supply chain shifts, you have a number of players that are sort of stepping on the field at the same time. And you can picture them based on whatever sport is your favorite. Okay. Football, you know, real football, you know, Cricket, since we're talking about India. Cricket, isn't what, that whatever a big you want, right? You, you pick, pick your uniform. Okay. They're all stepping on the field at the same time. And sort of the lineup is India, China, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore. So it's a tournament. It's a tournament, but <laughs> what you're trying to get to here, right, is is that each of these players has different levels of skill, positive and negatives. And when it comes to education, India is not comparable to the others. You know, Singapore is very advanced. Indonesia is sort of middle of the pack. Thailand's pretty good. Malaysia's pretty good. China's excellent. You know, India is not particularly strong. And part of that is because it's incredibly challenging in a country the size of India to have an equal educational system. Like it's, it's hard enough to do it in a country of 300 million people. Right, to do it in a country of greater than one billion, it's an enormous administrative challenge just to find enough qualified teachers. And so, you know, it's not something that, you know, they should be harped on for necessarily, but it, it is a problem. They know it's a problem. And it is one of the things they have to solve if they're going to compete with these other players. Because especially when it comes to the type of high-tech talent that people who might want to look for, who might consider leaving some of the other Asian markets, there's a lot of that talent in Vietnam. There's a lot of that talent in Malaysia. There's not enough of it in India. Because the educational system just isn't always there to support it. So it's there, and it's there in big numbers, but... It's a very difficult system to work in just because of its scale. And this is the downside of India's you know, massive scale mm -hmm. is that some of these challenges, they're just difficult to manage for any government. Let me ask a question going back to females in the workforce. And you mentioned cultural issues. Is that a relatively big issue or relatively small issue? Or there's so many different factors, it's hard to say. I think it, a lot of it, is, as Zane was talking about, is when you think about India, 
we tend to, right, sitting here on the other side of the world, tend to think about India as one entity. Yeah, like a monolith, right? And it's which it's not. Yeah. I mean it's it's an incredibly diverse country, you know, with hundreds of languages spoken, multiple religions, and even within states, right? You have multiple cultures and levels of competition. And I think we have to keep in mind that the modern state was created, right? They're going to celebrate their centennial in 2047, right? So it, India as a country and a civilization has existed for thousands of years, but modern India, mm-hmm. right, is not that old. And part of what Gandhi himself enshrined India with is that small villages have rights, right? And that modern India should not do what the East India Company did, which is try and change anything that has to do with native culture. Like instead native culture should be respected. And I think that's an overall positive thing, Mm -hmm. but it means that you tend to have some localities, some cultures that don't always see equal advancement as a positive. And some companies have gone out of their way to try and create new opportunities for women and they're just not able to find the candidates because perhaps they don't want to come forward. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they don't There's want the conflict. So many different issues. But, yeah. but it is an extraordinarily challenging thing. And look, one thing that India has going for it is you have a lot of women that are in power in India. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the cabinet, you know, is run by women. So it's not like this is a failure story. But this again is a huge challenge because a lot of this is about history and culture and those things change very slowly. But I guess if I go back and take, I'll call it the punchline from this message. If you think of 50% of the overall employment rate, 50% is, is relatively low. That's a huge opportunity then. And given the size of the population, you don't have to move at that many percentage points for it to make a big difference. Is that fair, Zane? That's true. And, and the fact is that, uh, over time, I think once you start getting a lot more participation from foreign businesses, you should see labor force participation rate go up. India is in a very unique position. We have seen with other countries as they have climbed up the growth trajectory, you have seen a slightly higher participation rate where women have made a lot more contributions. In India, we haven't really seen that needle move too much. So the anticipation is that once we start seeing a lot more foreign investment in India, if that comes to fruition, you will likely see a higher uh, labor force participation rate. And especially by women, as Craig was talking about, there has been made a Businesses have made a concerted effort to hire more women, and I think that effort will probably continue to sustain into the future. But part of what all of this gets to right is a key lesson for companies that are interested in India, and that is that one of the things that Delhi is laser-focused on, and again, it's very hard to do, is job creation. Mm -hmm. Like Job creation is probably job number one for any Indian government for years and decades to come. Right, there aren't enough jobs, and the government has to figure out how to help private industry generate more of them. And again, to Zane's point, it's part of the reason why they feel like this moment in time could be so opportune because they could get more foreign investment now that in an equilibrium world Mm -hmm. they might not get. But in a disequilibrium world where people are thinking, maybe I need to shift a little bit at least. 
maybe they get some of that pie and therefore foreign investors help them with this problem. But job creation, it's always going to be one of the things that any Indian government's going to worry about. So what are some of the other factors then in terms of if I'm a business leader, let's say sitting here in the U.S., that's trying to understand India's economy, same, where else would you, what else would you focus on? So it's a very domestic uh, demand-driven economy uh, where consumption makes up nearly 55 to 60 percent of the overall economy. It's different from India's peers who rely on exports for their growth. Uh, India is also a services-based economy. It's not a manufacturing economy yet. And that's different from China because Mm -hmm. China has four decades of experience in manufacturing. They have reorganized their entire society around manufacturing. India is only beginning to add more capacity around uh, manufacturing. Uh, The other thing to keep in mind is that India is a commodity importer. So it buys a lot of commodities required for a large population. So it's exposed to commodity price volatility. And as as we see more commodity uh, price, as we see commodity market, which tends to be very volatile, that's something which feeds into the domestic economy and it leads to a lot of macro imbalances within uh, India's economy. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. But fundamentally, it's a services economy. It's unique in respect that when you look at a typical development trajectory of a country, it usually starts as an agrarian economy. Then it jumps to manufacturing, it industrializes, and then finally to services. In India's case, it actually skipped the manufacturing uh, stage and jumped directly to services. And now it's trying to shift some of its comparative advantage away from services towards manufacturing. And Zane, if I think about the commodities point, is does it have the commodities in the country to let's say mine or you know that has arable land to grow crops and otherwise and it's not or it doesn't have those resources so that's a very that's a very good question so it does right so india is a major uh, rice exporter right. it's also a major cotton exporter it also have deposits of critical uh, metals which is uh, which it's now uh, beginning to explore and eventually mine uh, but uh, uh, the biggest commodity that India uses is energy, and that's something which it imports a lot of, and that's something which also weighs on its current account balances and in, on its uh, trade account. Which, hearkening back to the previous podcast, mm-hmm. just so happens to be those countries that are all now being invited to the BRICS, right? So yes. this, again, shows you the forethought that Delhi is sort of playing at, right? They're They're thinking about the relationships they need to have and trade and geopolitics. The other, I don't know if you consider it a commodity or resource that is really critical for businesses, especially businesses that may be thinking about doing manufacturing in India to think about is water. Mm -hmm. India is having real water challenges, both in terms of quality and supply. You know, India does not control its own water, right? It all starts in other places in Asia. And there are billions of people, like more than one, Mm -hmm. that rely on those streams of water. And this is something that I think probably keeps Modi up at night, is how do you make sure there's enough? And so if you do manufacturing in particular that's going to be very water intensive, 
you're going to have to think really critically about not just now, but in the future, can you get dependable supply? Mm-hmm. Well, if you think of what a complex problem water is, even in the U.S., yes. which is one country, then think about negotiating, you know, Correct. Um, so that's a, the huge issue. I will say maybe on the energy side, they could look to some renewables, although I know that's not going to solve all of their problems, but I mean, it would be one potential way, I guess, to re- reduce reliance. It is. I think part of the challenge is that a lot of the most affordable renewables comes from a country with which they do not always like to trade. All right. Well, on that note then, why don't we talk about business sentiment? Because I think that's another important thing for if I'm a company thinking about doing business in India, whether dealing with other companies there, or again, even thinking about it as a market, how does their sentiment, again, broadly, obviously individual companies may not all follow this, but broadly, what? how does the business sentiment, I guess, is where is it the same and where would it be different than if you were dealing with other companies in the U.S. or maybe in the EU? So for Indian companies, um, there is stark differences when you look at the surveys, uh, CFO, CEO surveys, than what how the CFOs or CEOs in the U.S. are thinking. I think Indian leadership is uh, very bullish on India. Uh, they feel, like Craig said, that India uh, can make valuable contributions globally, especially in areas like pharma, healthcare, IT, uh, as well as renewable, uh, where they have done major investments more recently. Uh, the U.S. Uh, sentiment tends to be slightly different. First, I think a lot of it is invested in uh, recession readiness at this point, given what we are going through in the business cycle. Uh, but with respect to India, I think most sentiment is that the Indian market is improving, but it remains very complex, and they still have to uh, do a very careful due diligence analysis before they try to dabble in India. The only thing I'll add here is that one of the most interesting forces that not everybody always pays attention to in business and geopolitics is the power and influence of the Indian diaspora abroad. Like, for one thing, there are Indians everywhere. Everywhere. And in many advanced economies, middle economies, they have achieved, you know, as immigrants through the generations, substantial positions of power, right? And they are obviously citizens of those countries that they have emigrated to. But this enables, you know, India to claim a lot of progress that I think is justified. And I think it also changes many multinational companies' understanding of India because the odds of having a corporate leader somewhere in the C-suite whose ancestors one, two, three, four generations before came from India are increasingly high. And so it's not going to necessarily going to be in an alien market to them. They may have traveled back, you know, yearly to see family. They may have gone as a child. They may have gone to college, but they may have a more native understanding of the market than other markets. And I think India is counting on that. And that, that advantage should not be discounted. All right. Well, definitely an interesting point then. And I guess from taking building on that point, what opportunities then, if I, again, am a company, where would you be focused if you're thinking about India and, and where 
you know, where I'd want to invest or how I'd want to work with companies there. So I think the good news is that they are looking for foreign investment across a huge swath of sectors, right? I think Zane made the really good point that they sort of skipped the manufacturing stage. And so they are definitely looking for foreign know-how. You know, one of the first sort of strong contact points that they had with global multinational companies goes back to the 80s when some of the then U.S. technology leaders started doing outsourcing, you know, in India in the 80s. And so there's always been an, an intellectual capability connection between the U.S. and India, but India is now looking for different things. They're looking for manufacturing. They're looking for finance. They're looking for technology. I think part of the challenging things for all of these companies is that the regulatory system in India can often be very sudden in its responses. And so India is definitely open for business. I mean, if you could hang signs on top of countries, that sign would be out. They are very aggressively bringing in tours of executives. Their diplomats are going out globally trying to get multiple sector representatives in. And I think they're being successful. But part of what you know, is part of the challenge is their regulatory environment. But they want help on any number of issues. I think part of the pro here is that they have an enormously talented workforce you know, of tremendous size. I think part of the challenge is that India can be a complicated place to do business. And companies in particular that may have been used to doing business in another population giant like China is a very different place from India in terms of the infrastructure, the IT, the regulatory environment. And, you know, not all giants are equal or the same. And so a lot of global multinational leaders have to go through an immense amount of acumen building about India. All right. Well, one of the things we mentioned in saying you started talking about it is investment and different sectors looking for investments. So if, again, if I'm listening and trying to think where I may uh, fit, what sectors in particular would you highlight? There are two where we are seeing a lot of interest. The first is financial services and fintech. That's partly because India has a large consumer base. Uh, it's unbanked, so there's a lot of opportunity there. And also, general, uh, generally, India tends to be very open to credit. The other sector is pharma, uh, where we are seeing global companies who are trying to diversify their sourcing strategies away from China for APIs and for chemicals, and India is in a very good spot. It also has a highly technical pharma uh, workforce, uh, which could help businesses expand or shift their supply chains uh, to India. Uh, in terms of the business strategy, I think uh, it, it's critical to keep in mind that your business strategy needs to be aligned with the policy imperatives in India. There has been a concentration of power in India, as Craig mentioned, which has uh, led uh, reforms. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's important to align your strategy with what the policymakers are thinking, which is uh, more green energy, uh, healthcare. Uh, retail, so on and so forth. 
All right. Well, so I, I was reflecting while I was listening to you. This podcast overall, I feel like it's more positive than some of the podcasts I do do with the two of you, where there's a lot of risk and concern and moving tectonic forces and otherwise. But obviously, clearly, there are risks here as well. And so what are, again, if I'm a company thinking of maybe expanding my footprint, what are some of the risks that you would put as top of mind? So I, I think there are there are risks, and I think it is important for any company that's listening and coming up with the same takeaway you are. Like there is enormous potential in India, mm-hmm. but it is a market that needs to be approached carefully and with a lot of diligence. So one of those touched on very briefly, which is regulation. And in those spaces where it currently operates and where it doesn't have a lot of oversight, India's regulatory environment can be very unpredictable, right? Regulators can announce things almost overnight, right? With no warning, no comment period, you know, and this makes things very difficult. The other area, and we talked about this in Global Forces, is that India, like China, knows that it has a gold mine of data because it has a large population, right? And it wants to take first advantage of that size and scale just as China does, which is totally understandable. And it is behind where China is in its data laws, but they're coming. And so companies that might think potentially about leaving the Chinese market because there are cyber and data laws Mm -hmm. that require a lot of compliance – they may or may not have the same level of that in India, but they're probably going to get them over the next five, 10 years. And that's something they need to think about. I think the last thing in terms of risk, though, is this human capital equation, right? Education, job creation, equal opportunity. These are major challenges that India has. And they're not just challenges for India. They're problems that need to be solved if it's going to be competitive with those other players that are coming on the field. Because they have their own problems too and their own risks. But these are decade-long challenges that India has not been able to solve. And it's not because they haven't tried. These things really do need to be addressed if someone's going to do major multi-billion dollar levels of investment in India. And I I don't want to have businesses underappreciate what we've already talked about, which is you've got to pay attention to the statistics statistics around job creation, Mm -hmm. not just your job creation as a U.S. or multinational company, but how many jobs are being created because you need to know the size of the labor talent pool and you need to know the health of that talent pool in terms of opportunity. And there isn't enough opportunity right now. All right. Zane, for, well, for our listeners' benefit, Zane was nodding when uh, 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 Craig was talking. But Zane, anything to add? You know, I will mention four risks that we are watching. Um, the first is that avoid, uh, if, avoid directly competing with local incumbents and conglomerates. Uh, there is success there, but the path to success, it's, is difficult because they know uh, how to navigate the complex regulatory structure uh, that India has. The second is exactly what Craig said. I think legal regulatory framework uh, is changing. It's 
fluid. There are certain areas in India which are under-regulated, like cyber and data management. There are other areas where you see excessive enforcement, which are over-regulated. So regulatory landscape is something which will change, and India is trying to get that approach right. Uh, so knowing the legal status of your sector and how the trajectory may change is very critical. The third is what I mentioned before. India is a large country. Um, they have tried to harmonize a lot of regulations in India across states, but it's still not the same. It's different if you're opening a data center in Tamil Nadu versus West Bengal. So knowing those nuances and understanding the geographical and uh, uh, differences across demography across these different states is very important and it will help you uh, if you want to approach a more pan-India strategy. And then uh, the final uh, risk which we are watching for, in addition to the labor which we have talked about, uh, is is the fact that you have a uh, country which um, you know feels that it could make a lot of valuable contributions globally. It's exerting its global influence. We have seen that you have a lot of tech companies who are operating in India, especially content uh, companies who are creating content, and they have received some blowback when they have uh, said something which um, may not be quite aligned with where the government uh, may, uh, may be going towards. So there are some reputational risk there, which companies, I think, in certain sectors could potentially face if they're operating in India. So it's important to be cognizant of that. So then if I take all of the opportunity and then these risks, some of which are very big, how, if I'm, again, sort of putting this together, I guess, of two questions. One is, how should, I'll use the word should, companies be thinking about this? And then, where do we see companies sort of doing this well? Are there some lessons we can take from that? So, I think part of the advantage for companies, but not necessarily for India, is that there are multiple players on the field at the moment who are trying to compete. And as we're going to talk about this tomorrow with supply chain. As we talk about this, many countries in the world, but especially, right, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Mexico, India, there's a lot of options. And so it's a buyer's market, not a seller's market. And so if you are a country, you, you have the burden to prove that your market is the one that should be receiving foreign investment. And that's sort of one of the tasks before the Indian government right now is to prove that that's happening. So I I think that's a big part of it. And that is something that I think will continue to evolve. And these big challenges are going to weigh on that. I think the only other thing that I would say is, and this sort of piggybacks off of the conversation that we had with global forces and ESG is that it would be ill-advised to treat India as a monolith, right? Think about locality in India. Think about things at the state level, as Zane has talked about, because you will have varying opportunities, various tax structures, various regulatory structures. Those states are competing with one another for business. And so getting a good guide to help you understand that level of competition could lead to greater opportunity. How about from your perspective, Zane? I think one way that most businesses have tried to mitigate 
uh, some of the risk is having a local partner, uh, which have helped navigate some of these uh, complex uh, legal issues um, and operating other operating risks uh, within India. So I think that's something like China, which uh, is true for India as well. Um, it, it's it's important to make sure that you have done your stakeholder mapping and also that you have a local partner uh, who you could use uh, or leverage uh, to uh, navigate through the complex regulatory framework that India has. All right. So, Zane, you kind of hit on this in your response, but let me ask the question directly because I think this can be helpful for our listeners to sort of uh, bring it all together. We obviously talking to a lot of companies and we're seeing companies sort of navigate through these risks. Are there any other best practices that we see that we could share that you would sort of give people as a place to start if they want to start thinking about this market? So I think part of what you want to think about when you think about the market is the interconnectedness of some of these markets, right? India is a massive market on its own, but it is not part of some of the giant, for instance, Asian trade agreements, right? It's not part of CTPPP. It walked away from RCEP because of what it perceived to be unfair advantages for other Asian giants, and so part of what you get potentially if you go into some of the other countries in Southeast Asia is you not just get access to their market, but if you do this right, you may get special access to other markets in the region. And so it's not just understanding the market, it's understanding what are the strong connective tissue between that market and the other regional markets. So as globalization has taken a hit, regionalization has blossomed in Southeast Asia. And that's huge for companies if you can understand it. And so it's not just due diligence on that market. It's really understanding the connections and the pipes between them and where those pipes don't exist. All right. Good advice, Sane. Any final thoughts or perspectives? Uh, no, except that India, I think for most businesses, it's an improving market, but it's still a difficult market. And the next 21, 20 years, I think, for India are going to be critical in terms of getting their policy right, especially with respect to investing in infrastructure and innovation. So that's what we will be watching for. All right. Well, if I go back to where you started when you said, I think you said it was by 2050, it was going to be the world's third largest economy. Um, and thereafter, maybe even bigger, definitely sounds like a place that companies want to focus if they want to take advantage of this opportunity. So I think that's true. I think it's going to come down to three things that we've talked about. You know, one is making it a more dynamic economy. The other is finding a way to better train and harness talent. Mm. And I think the third is changing its negative statistics about women and employment from something that is very marginal to something that is a real you know, success story. If those three things can happen, I think you know, the later you get in the century, it becomes more of India's century. All right. Well, definitely a lot to think about. Gentlemen, such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks Thank for having us. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.